Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm glad to see all of you, even those who are sitting on the floor. You know, the thing I look forward to the most in the life of this fellowship in my own life is the time that we get to come together on Wednesday nights and study the Word. It is one of the most consistent groups of people, and it's a privilege that God's given us. I really look forward to it after the events of this week. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you know what that chapter is. It's the chapter of love. And I think it's very fitting, especially concerning our circumstances today that we find ourselves in. How many of you have been praying for rain? Good. The rest of you, you need to join the crowd. We're almost there. How many of you know who Tina Turner is? Those of you down here, you have no idea who she is. But for the 80s throwback crowd, they're going, dude, that's when pop music was pop. I mean, well, she had a very famous song and you could see her with her long, thin legs and the big hair singing, what's love got to do with it? And she said, what's love but a secondhand emotion? Who needs a heart? When a heart can be broken. Well, do you think that her words are true? We would say no. The believer would say absolutely not. But where do they come from? Perhaps hurt or maybe even a lack of understanding about the true nature of love. I've had quite a week and a half. I don't know about you. But about last Wednesday... I was in a staff meeting and I received a phone call uh, from my wife. And she informed me that one of my dearest friends had suffered a very tragic, tragic death. And I thought, oh Lord, can there be any more? He was such a close friend, he was the best man in my wedding. Well, we kind of got over the initial shock. But yesterday, my wife and I, we went to the funeral. And we gathered with about 250, 300 close friends as we remembered the loss of our loved one. Now, he was the kind of guy that in my early 20s, I loved hanging out with. Because he had a particular genius that he was able to say the most inappropriate thing at the perfect time. No matter where you were. And he was a pretty crazy guy. He was a musician, a great songwriter. But as we gathered, friends and relatives, I noticed a few things. The first thing I noticed is that no one had an unkind word. No one read a list of his faults. Everyone talked about how much they loved him and how much they loved each other. And in the end of it all, at the end of his life, even though very tragic, love was the winner of the day. And our message tonight is titled, Love Never Fails. Now tonight we're in the book of Corinthians, and 
were once again faced with a group of people who lived in Corinth. The Corinthian church, as we find out in the first four chapters, was a church that struggled with unity. In chapter 5 and 6, we notice that they struggled with sin and bringing another brother to court. They had struggles with divorce in chapter 7, struggles with disputes over doctrine in verse chapters 8 through 10, struggles with factions, women, and worship and communion in chapter 11. And where we find ourselves tonight is smack dab in the, their struggles with their spirituality and spiritual gifts right in the middle of between chapter 12 and 14. A little bit of background is necessary. They were a city of about 250,000 inhabitants. In that day, it was a very large metropolitan city. It was a seaport right in the middle of the Aegean Sea in the Gulf of Corinth on a small five-mile piece of land. It was used by those to carry cargo from one side to the other, and it allowed them to avoid the very dangerous sea route of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Peninsula, excuse me, is it, did I say Peninsula? Peninsula. <laughs> In Acts chapter 18, we find that Paul had been there for about a year and a half founding the church. And so by the time he writes us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it has been about five years. And though it was a problem church, it was a growing church, it was a very gifted church, and I might add that it was a very real church. Just like us, we live in a very cool part of our state. We're kind of, we're the closest thing to a metropolitan city in New Mexico. And this church, though we've been around a lot longer than the Corinthians had at this time, we're a very real church. We have problems, we have growth, and we have lots of spiritual gifts and lots of love. Now, I mentioned before that it was sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14. This is interesting because chapter 12 brings up the whole idea of spiritual gifts. There was a brand new phenomena within the Christian church. You had these ecstatic utterances. You had gifts of prophecy. You had various kinds of tongues. And then in chapter 14, we have a full exposition about tongues and their use publicly in the church. So chapter 13 is what we call a parenthetical chapter. That it could stand alone, you could put that chapter anywhere in the Bible. However, it really becomes the anchor for the whole book. It becomes the anchor for the whole church. As we read in chapter um, 12... At the last verse, he says, And yet I show you a more excellent way. And the excellent way is of love. I counted myself, the word agape, love, is used nine times in this chapter. The Corinthian church, like most of our churches, needed a brand new dose of love. I love what James Packer said about this word. He says, the Greek word agape, love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. 
apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, it is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It is a matter of the will rather than feeling. For Christians must even love those they dislike. It is the basic element of Christ-likeness. Look with me at the text. We'll divide it up into three sections tonight. I don't know why preachers like sermons with three points. This will be a longhorn sermon. A point on either end and then a lot of bull in between. Not really. We won't do that tonight. It's a three-point sermon. And we'll divide it like this. Verses 1 through 3, we'll see the significance of love. Verses 4 through 7, the substance of love. Verses 8 through 13, the superiority of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight. We love Your Word. And we love coming before You as Your children. And Lord, we look expectantly to You because we know that You have the answers. You've never left us as orphans. You continually bring us along with goodwill and measure of faith that You so freely give to us. Lord, we know that Your Word is a sure foundation, a very strong anchor in the storms of life. So Lord, Pour out upon us Your Word. Pour into us truth so that we may grow thereby and be the people of God in Albuquerque. We want to bear Your name and Your love. Help us, Lord, for this hour. In Jesus' name, Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 13. The significance of love. He says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing." Now, before we go any further, there's a few things we need to note about this particular passage or section in this area of Scripture. It is hypothetical in structure, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. The key indicator here is the subordinating conjunction aeon, or if, in English, in my version here, the New King James, it's translated though. All of the verbs in this passage, and I know this is really going to bless you, but bear with me. All of the verbs in this passage are in the subjunctive mode. That is, the subjunctive mode is not a mode of real time. It's not real, it's potential. In fact, in the New Testament, the main three Greek modes that you find are the indicative mode, which is a real-time event, the imperative mode, which is the mode of command, and then the subjunctive, which is the mode of potential, not yet happened. Paul is setting up for the Corinthians and us what I see, as I saw today, a best-case scenario for the believer. 
And what I've done is I made a list, and I listed them like this, a list of assets that Paul seems to believe would be the best case scenario for the Christians living in Corinth. The verse 1, we see the asset of speech. Speech that is of men and angels. Now, wouldn't you like to have that? Now, I don't know how many of you have angelic tongues. I know many of you men, when you first saw your wife, or maybe she talked to you on the phone, you thought she was an angel, but you found out different lately, uh, later. <laughs> I mean, ha- what would an angel be doing with you? That's, you know, that's a big <laughs> thing. In verse 2, we see prophecy. Prophecy is very simply stated here as proclaiming God's word. It's also foretelling of future events. He says there's also another asset, and that is the understanding of all mysteries, mysteria. That is, imagine you had the ability to understand every mystery that ever happened on the planet. Pretty good asset to have, especially as a Christian. He also adds in here, possessing of all knowledge. You'd almost be like Bill Gates. Not only that, but having all knowledge. You have, add to that, all faith. The kind of faith that allows you to move mountains. Now, I don't know if any of you have tried this, probably embarrassingly so, but I've never felt called to go up to the Sandias and say, be thou removed down to the Rio Grande. I've never done it, and I probably never will, but imagine that you have that kind of faith. Verse 3 Not only giving of faith, but we have the give of all resources to feed the poor. He would best call himself a humanitarian. And then finally, we see the the big gift would be the gift of giving a body to be burned. Now, history is full of those who have given their bodies to be burned for the sake of Christ and be martyred. And I... I can assure you that I haven't brought any of those accounts. However, let's take just a pause for a moment to think about what your body, just if all you had to give was your body, what your body produces in 24 hours of time. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels an astounding 168 million miles in one day. You breathe 23,040 times. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a half pounds. Some of you a little more. Some of us a lot more. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. Sorry I said that. Uh, you speak 4,800 words, including unnecessary ones. You move 750 muscles and you exercise 7 million brain cells in one day. And if all you had to give was your body to be burned, that's quite a gift. Now, if this were a mathematical equation, it would look something like this. Amazing attributes minus love equals nothing. And here's the point. Love is the critical element that facilitates real, tangible results in the kingdom of God. 
Scripture indicates that even our highest efforts in life and ministry, if found to be lacking love, are at best failures. What that tells us is that batteries are required. How many of you here love the little Energizer bunny? You know what? None of you do. But he is a part of our culture. I know we've all had dreams of grabbing the little thing and throwing it out in the street. But the little Energizer Buzzy, bunny, Buzzy, that's his name, Buzzy. He requires batteries in order to work. You may have a very beautiful car sitting in your driveway or in your garage or hopefully not on blocks in your front yard. But if you have a car, it needs an engine in order to run. Lamps need bulbs and electricity. Bread that you make needs flour. Grass needs water, especially our grass, needs water and sunlight. Men need brains. I know that many of you are thinking, I've got by with one, without one for so many years, why would I need one now? And women need time, resources, and a place to shop. No, right. <laughs> I'm not a chauvinist, I just speak the truth. Which brings me to a point, there is a point here. Humans need love. We need love very desperately. And I found an article by Renee Spitz that accentuates the fact that we need love and affection. In a South African, South American orphanage, Spitz observed and recorded what happened to 97 children who were deprived of emotional, physical contact with others. Because of a lack of funds, there was not enough staff to adequately care for the children ages three months to three years old. Nurses changed diapers and fed and bathed the children, but there was little time to hold, cuddle, and talk to them as a mother would. After three months, many of them showed signs of abnormality. Besides a loss of appetite and being unable to sleep well, many of the children lay with vacant expressions in their eyes. After five months, serious deterioration set in. They lay whimpering with troubled and twisted faces. Often when a doctor or nurse would pick up an infant, it would scream in terror. Twenty-seven, almost one-third of the children died the first year. But not from a lack of food or health care. They died of a lack of touch and emotional nurture. Because of this, seven more died the second year, and 21 of the 97 survived, most suffering serious psychological damage. Why is love important? Or what gives love its value? Love is important because of who it has as its source. Keep your finger here and look with me over in 1 John Chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, look with me at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
this passage clearly lets us know that God is the source of love. Look at the next verse, verse 8. He says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Not only is God the source of love, but God is love. I love the Weiss translation, the expanded Greek translation. He says it like this, Because God, as to His nature, is love. That's the way the Greek portrays it. And because God is the source of love, and we know a few things by deduction that there is none higher, none greater, none more important than God, then His form of love and His expressions of love hold higher and greater esteem than any form or understanding of love that we could ever produce in human nature. Because God is the source, His love is the highest and the greatest. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to jot it down. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 12, we read the words of Jesus. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's a command of our Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. If you'd like to turn there, I'll give you just a second. He commands us to love. But this love is never separated from His person, the person of Himself, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's a new equation. Not only amazing attributes minus love means nothing, but here's a new equation. Great works minus a relationship with Jesus also equals nothing. You cannot separate love from its source. If you try to go around it, you end up with nothing. Dr. Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist and founder of the Menninger Clinic, has written this. He said... Love is the medicine for our sick world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they will usually recover from their physical or mental illness. He said, love is the key to the entire therapeutic program of modern psychiatric hospitals. A story was told of how he put this into play. He said one day he called his clinical staff together and proceeded to unfold a plan for developing his clinic an atmosphere of love, creative love. So this is what he did. He called in all of the doctors, all of the staff, and he said, look, the environment we're going to create around here is an environment that is full of love and smiles and acceptance. And so as the doctors and the staff went throughout their day, they never went throughout their day without loving and responding in a very kind fashion. It is said that patients who entered into the clinic during that time 
decrease their stay by at least half. Well, here's the key. God is love. So that means that if his work is to be done in this world, it will be done according to his nature. Look with me at verse 4 of Corinthians chapter 13. The substance of love. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This section that we'll look at now is just a glimpse or a quick look into love in action. It's, it's like looking at what love does in a real life situation. The substance of love is always manifested in the actions of those possessed by its truth. Love is recognized by one thing it does and the things that it does not do. It's the things that it does and it's the things that it does not do. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as you do this, we find one of the great secrets, he said. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him much less. I've compiled two lists. One has eight things in it. The other has seven things. So we'll not just go right through the verse. What we've done is I've divided it into the list of the things that love does not do and the things that love does. Verses four through seven. Let's look at the things love does not do. First of all, love does not envy. The NASB translate this as jealous. It's the Greek word zelo. It means to be jealous. Envy, as I craftily wrote earlier today, rots the soul it inhabits. It always causes us to rejoice at the wrong time and causes us to be sad or angry at the wrong time. Envy is the sickly, sissy cousin of hatred. It never owns its true identity, ever lurking in the shadows. Love does not envy. Next, we notice that love does not parade itself. Again, the NASB translates it as brag. Literally, it means to brag. In my native tongue, my Texan tongue, we'd say, there he goes running his mouth off again. Now, nobody likes a braggart. Even though your friends and family may tell you that they like you, they don't like it when you brag. Love does not brag. We also notice that love is not puffed up. This would better be translated as arrogance. It's interesting to note that arrogance is the opposite of humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 
Verse 5, I love these words. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Do you ever find people are resisting you? Young people, do you find that maybe when you give advice or you ask your parents for things or it just doesn't seem to go right, it seems like people are resisting you? Here's a little window into life. God is not the only one who resists arrogant people. If you find that everyone is resisting you, there could be a problem, not with them, but possibly with you. Love is not arrogant. Then we notice that love does not behave rudely. He says, love does not behave in such a way that it is insensitive or callous to those around them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Next we notice that love does not seek its own. Literally, in the Greek, it means does not seek the things of itself. Again, I refer you to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Love is not provoked. This word is a very unique word, and it means to be provoked suddenly to very rancorous, caustic, destructive outbursts of anger. Those of you in here who struggle with anger know what that's all about. Even though you may call yourself a passionate person, it really doesn't have its root in love. The fruit of the Spirit comes in and begins to overflow that portion of your life so that you are enabled not to respond in anger, but in love, a response in peace and goodness. Not only that, but it says that love thinks no evil. That is, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's the Greek word logizomai, to take into account. And it's a bookkeeping term. That is, to take record of every little thing that happens. Now, I don't know if you're like this, but if you kind of have a little petty spirit, this is what you'll say. You'll say, all right, buddy, I saw that. And you just made the list right now. That's logizomai. That's taking it into account. Love doesn't do that. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love says, every morning that I get up, I give you a brand new start. I'll hope for the best for you today. And I'll give you a new chance. Finally, we notice the last thing that love does not do. It does not rejoice in iniquity. The word there is te, adakia which means there is a disregard for divine law. It is unrighteousness, wrongdoing, or wickedness. Love is never happy about wrongdoing. Love is never happy to see anybody fail or any type of scandal. Love doesn't like gossip at all. 
In fact, it shuns those deeds away from it. Now, I know. I mean, I've known of people who've had problems with gossip. Not myself. Um, I detest it. But I heard a story the other day of a guy. You know how it goes. That's not love. All right, let's look at the seven things that love does. We'll trudge back through verses 4 through 7. It'd probably be a good time to take notes. Love suffers long. That is, the word there is makrothumeo, which means long-tempered or slow to boil. It doesn't lose its temper quickly. It's very slow to boil. And I might add, if you're a mom with four kids... This is a good attribute to have, right, Carly? It's tough. It's easy to fly off the handle. Love is also kind. And this means a very helpful, serving, peaceable attitude. This is the person you want to be around. This is the person you want to have as a friend. Love also rejoices in the truth. And this is what we mean by that. We're happy about the things of God. We're happy about the truth that Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're always rejoicing in good, never rejoicing in unrighteousness. Love bears all things. It's the word stego. It means to bear, to cover, to protect, to lend help. True love never seeks to harm or humiliate the sinner. At the same time, it doesn't pretend that sin is not there, but it exposes the sin in a very private way so as not to humiliate but give reverence and love and respect to the one it is bearing or covering. That's the real balance. And that's the balance that's needed to keep us from legalism. Once you become a Christian and you read a few chapters of the Bible and you get through the Ten Commandments and maybe a couple of things in the New Testament, all of a sudden you feel like a Bible scholar. And now you're able to go to all of your friends and say, ha ha. Now, according to this passage right here, you just sinned. Something about that approach never works. It always needs this stego to bear it up, to realize that the sinner is someone who is in great need and will gladly come along and cover and rebuke simultaneously. Love not only bears all things, but it believes all things. Love always gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. It desires to believe the best first. It's not cynical or bitter. Now, I don't know what kind of nature you have or what kind of home you grew up in. But if you grew up in a very positive environment, you'll say, yes, this is true. But if you grew up in the cynical environment, you'll say, well... That kind of immature belief is only for those who don't know the truth. If you only knew the things that I've been through, buddy, you wouldn't be so positive. You'd be a little more cynical. True biblical love that comes from God is so ready to believe the best, not the worst. Not only does it believe all things, but it hopes in all things. Elpis is the name. It sounds like Elvis, doesn't it? Elpis. There's a whole lot of hoping going on around here. Oh, that sounds terrible. Maybe I should go back and do that again. I'm sorry for bringing that out in here. It's just sometimes these words sound so foreign. 
But this is what it means. It means actively pursuing and believing for the very best in every situation. It is the kind of attitude one needs when you're going through a trial. And these are the kind of phrases that come from that attitude. He said, God is going to use this bad thing for our good. God is going to turn it out to something good in my life. I know that evil is against me, but even though evil is against me, I have a sense and a presence that God is going to take even this and turn it into something fabulous. That is what this word means. Hopes all things. Actively pursuing the hand of God in every situation. And then love endures all things. Hupomeno means to endure. The word carries with it the idea of hanging on when you need to hang on. It's been called the queen of virtues. But it calls us to stay strong when you don't want to stay strong. Notice that love endures all things, even the tough stuff, not just the easy things. Love endures all things. You ever feel like you're at the end of your rope? That maybe you're just hanging on by a small, thin thread? That you say, you know what, Lord, I don't have much left. But then a friend will call, or a neighbor, or a family member, and they'll call you up and encourage you and tell you how much they love you. And all of a sudden, you've got 20 extra feet of rope, and you're able to hang on like you never were able to. Love endures all things. Love is active and always in pursuit of the best for others. I heard a story of Oliver Cromwell. He was known as the Lord Protector of England in the 17th century. And he told of a story of a soldier who was going to be put to death as the bell of curfew rang in the evening. Well, this soldier had a young lover. And she loved him very dearly. And so she thought, the only thing I can do is stop that bell from ringing. So what she did is she ran up the belfry, climbing very skillfully, and wrapped her arms around the great clapper. And so as they began to ring the bell, you hear this, doom, doom. Doom, oh, doom, oh, or probably something like that. So the soldiers said, what's going on? They go up and find this woman and they bring her down. And they take her to Cromwell. And as he sees this woman weeping brought into his presence, he sees her hands bloodied, her arms bruised, her body is broken. And he said, your act of courage and love has saved Your young man's life. The bell of curfew will not ring tonight. What is love? It is silence when your words would hurt. It is patience when your neighbors hurt. It is deafness when scandal flows. It is thoughtfulness for others' woes. It is promptness when duty calls. It is courage when misfortune falls. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8. We see the superiority of love. 
Verse 8, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, even that which is in part will be done away. Here's the point. Love never fails. True love has God as its source and is therefore divine in nature. And being divine, it possesses the superior qualities of stability and strength, outmatching all others. Nothing else can compare. Nothing compares to love. Nothing will ever outlast it. But just in case we might miss the point, he draws our attention back to the issue of spiritual gifts. He draws us back to where we began in the beginning of this study. Verse 8, he says, these are the things that will fail. Prophecies, which they love so much, he says, will fail. Tongues, which they took great pride in, will fail, will cease. Knowledge, which was given by God, by the Holy Spirit, will vanish away. Why? Verse 9 lets us know. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. This phrase here, in part, is the Greek phrase ek merus. It's a very interesting phrase, and it's found in the genitive case, which means the case of possession in Greek. But, but what it means, it means out from, a part of. It gives us the idea of something that is not complete but lacking. It carries the idea that we have a portion of the whole but not a whole. And as humans, we can relate to that. We have this sense that we're not complete. Do any of you here actually feel that you are perfect and complete? I don't. I can think of so many things that could be added to my life. And you can think of all the things that could be added to yours. Why? Because we know in part. We prophesy in part. We understand in part. But he points us to the future. And I want to draw your attention to verse 10. He says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part, ekmeros, will be done away with. The word perfect there is a bad translation, I think. Because when we think of perfect, we think of maybe Tom Cruise or somebody who spent a lot of money fixing the curves on the face, so to speak. But here the word is teleos, and it means completion, In fact, we'll look in a few verses over here that it is translated in many passages as maturity. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14.20, it's translated there as maturity. In Ephesians 4.13, we find that it is translated as maturity, speaking of the mature man. And in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11, he talks about the love of God being perfected in us. 
And the way that he uses the word here is in such a way that it lets us know that the perfection process or the maturation process has begun, but we have not yet been completely perfected or matured in the process of love. Now, there are three interpretations of this passage, three classic interpretations. I'm sort of halfway adding my own at the end. The first interpretation is that the word perfect here refers to the full canon of Scripture. That means that whenever the full canon of Scripture had come in and all that was to be written in the New Testament was completed and you have the death of all the apostles, that the perfect represents the full, complete rendering of the biblical text to us. Now, the second interpretation refers to perfect as the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I think there's good reason to believe for this, simply by the fact that it speaks of a future event, the perfect being Jesus Christ, the full completion of His love coming. And then there is a third. Perfect would be better understood in this interpretation as maturity. And I think the answer lies somewhere in between two and three. Look at me at verse 11 and notice the contrast after the perfect comes. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Notice he's bringing out those images again. He said, I spoke, I understood, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He says in verse 12, For we see now in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, but then I shall be known just also, just as I also am known. When Jesus Christ comes, either by death on earth right now, our death, or by rapture, we will be caught up into a new existence that we have never known before. In fact, it will be the eschaton, the completion, the end of our life here. We will have full knowledge. We will no longer be in this childlike spiritual state, but we will have complete, immediate, full comprehension. However, until that takes place, There is a process that goes on day to day while we are in this body. And it is the process of growth and maturity. That's it. I want to sum this all up with 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, and we'll close. I believe this sums up where we should be as a church in relation to love and understanding of the whole idea of completion, maturity, and perfection in love and the things of God. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we, have, we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love.
We love him because he first loved us. And in verse 20, we see the true test of maturity. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. He who loves God must love his brother also. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. Folks, let me just speak very clearly. You and I need each other's love very deeply and very tangibly right now. And this whole list that we went through, and you did very good, needs to be implemented right now in our lives. That we will stand as a church before a lost and hurting world, before a Christian community and say, we have our marching orders from heaven. And those orders say, love, love, love. And that's our challenge tonight. He prayeth best who loveth best. All things great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, ever present, guiding us, challenging us. And Lord, we need you this very hour to still our hearts with a sense of urgency to put into practice the best of the knowledge that we have. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Guide us out in peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.